This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The minimum wage in Colorado would grow to $12 an hour if voters pass Amendment 70 this election. It is currently $8.31. Today, a debate, the first of several you'll hear of measures on the statewide ballot. Deborah Brown is business manager for Colorado Business for a Fair Minimum Wage, which is in favor of raising the minimum wage. And Sonia Riggs is against the measure. She's president of the Colorado Restaurant Association. And ladies, welcome to the program. Thank you for having us. Deborah, briefly, how would the wage increase work? What are the mechanics of it? Yeah, so as you mentioned, it's currently eight thirty-one, so it'll go up to nine dollars and thirty cents in January of twenty seventeen, and then it'll increase by ninety cents until it reaches twelve dollars in twenty twenty. And it'll then be adjusted annually so the minimum wage keeps up with the cost of living rather than falling behind. All right. So $12 by 2020. And uh, from that point on, COLA adjustments, cost of living adjustments. Correct. Okay. According to a 2015 report by the U.S. Department of Labor, there were approximately 22,000 people in Colorado making at uh, basically the minimum wage. Um, that's less than 1% of everyone in the state who has a job. Given the small number of people it impacts, why do you think passing this amendment is important? Uh, so it's really important also to point out the total number of people affected are not just people making the bare minimum wage, but people are making anywhere in that range up to 12 an hour. And that's overall 480,000 hardworking Coloradoans, over half of whom are women. So that's like uh, one in five women in the workforce. Um, and it's also 86 uh, percent, nine out of 10 of these people are over the age of 20. So that's just a little more about who the people are that will be impacted by this ballot initiative. And so you're saying don't look at just the folks who make the minimum wage. Look at those folks in the area between what is currently the minimum wage, 831 and $12, where it will eventually go. Right. We're talking a lot of households that are going to be impacted. 130,000 are parents with full-time jobs living in poverty with their children. Um, And to answer your question about why it's good, this is a gradual increase that will give businesses time to adjust. And at the end of the day, when workers have more money in their pockets, especially low-wage workers, they invest that back in the local economy. They don't offshore that money. They don't put it in 401ks. They spend it right back in the local community, which leads to a busting economy. But if you raise the minimum wage, don't prices increase, say, at restaurants or stores, and therefore... Someone who earns a higher minimum wage goes to that store and faces higher prices as a result. So most of the data shows that uh, the increase is pretty negligible, less than uh, 1%. And on average, a 10% increase in the wage results in less than a 1% increase in restaurant prices. So, for example, in San Francisco, after they raised its minimum wage by 31 percent, the cost of a $50 meal at a table service restaurant was $1.40 higher, and the cost of a $2 fast food hamburger was 12 cents higher than in neighboring Alameda County, which did not raise the minimum wage. So you don't dispute that prices will increase, but you don't think that it will happen to such an extent as to negate raising the minimum wage? Yeah, there's no question about it. At the end of the day, uh, workers will end up way uh, better off. 
And most businesses have more customers than employees. So that's why we have a large contingency of support from businesses from across the state and in a variety of industries that understand that raising the wage is also better for business. When consumers have money to spend, they spend it locally and those businesses benefit. They also benefit in several ways, which I think we'll talk about a little later. Indeed, we'll dig into this. We're also going to talk about where your campaigns are getting support from. But first, Sonia, last week in a visit to Denver, U.S. Labor Secretary Thomas Perez said the Obama administration was fully behind Amendment 70. Governor Hickenlooper told me that he was sympathetic to raising the minimum wage. And an independent poll found 55 percent of voters were in favor of this. What is it that you believe they are missing? Well, unfortunately, we think it's going to hurt the very same people that it's trying to help. And, um, you know, any job loss we really don't think is acceptable. When you look at places like Washington, D.C. and Seattle, um, Washington, for example, when they raised their minimum wage to ten fifty an hour, the first six months they saw, saw 1,400 restaurant jobs go away. That doesn't help those people. And like you had mentioned, price increases are another big thing. We surveyed um, our members about a year ago in a very similar minimum wage increase, and 89% of them said that they would increase prices. Uh, 72% of them said that they would reduce staffing uh, hours, and 71% says they would reduce staffing levels overall. And and that is why we're not seeing um, that those very same people that the proponents are trying to help, we're actually not seeing them be helped in some of these other cities that had already passed the minimum wage. But if some minimum wage increase might lead to higher prices, at least some higher prices, and perhaps some job loss, are you saying that you should never raise the minimum wage? Well, the minimum wage is a starting wage, first of all. It's not meant to uh, to support a family of four. It's a, a minimum wage that gives people the opportunity to get their foot in the door with a job, learn valuable skills, and work your way up. Um, and it already does increase every year with the Boulder-Denver-Greeley CPI index. Um, it, it, has, um, it was put in the Constitution in 2006, and every year the minimum wage already increases. So even if this ballot initiative fails, the minimum wage will increase in January 2017. Right. Let's be clear that the current minimum wage does increase with the cost of living. Correct. Yeah. Uh, you talked about uh, layoffs, for instance, in Washington, D.C. Goodness, isn't the Denver, Metro Denver restaurant market, at least, booming? Can't restaurants afford something like this? Well, restaurants in the Denver and Boulder area absolutely can. In fact, many of them are paying already. I'm hearing 15 or $16 an hour for a dishwasher because that's what the market will bear in this area. But the same is not uh, for rural communities. Look at Lyman and Pueblo. I was just out in Pueblo about a week ago, and I didn't see any construction cranes. They're, they're, these rural communities are having a much harder time coming back from the recession, and that's a big concern. That's one of the reasons that the Colorado Farm Bureau, for example, is on the side opposing this initiative, because they're very worried what it's going to do the, to their rural farmers. Is it possible, Deborah, that this is too one-size-fits-all, that it, uh, it better fits the areas of the state that are booming and uh, is... is uh less of a good fit for those that are not? What we have to keep in mind is that the cost of living is going up across the state. We also like to point out in 2006, when the minimum wage was raised last, that were, there were 6,000 jobs added to the economy in rural areas specifically. There were over 34,000 jobs added statewide. And, um, you know, generally, you, you see this type of growth. The truth of the matter, though, is living in a the cost of living in a rural community has also increased and that exceeds um, what 
what people can pay. People who put in a full day's labor should be able to clothe themselves, to feed themselves. And that's what this proposition does. It's a gradual increase so that businesses all over the state and including rural communities can adjust so that their workers can pay their bills. And also, we have to also look at the other side of it when there are businesses that aren't paying their workers a wage that they can feed themselves and clothe themselves, then those workers have no choice but to turn to the social safety net. And so that puts an increased burden on taxpayers, not only in rural areas, but the business owners in those rural areas around the state. Is what I hear you saying, you're paying in one way or another as a taxpayer? Correct. Okay. And a business owner. Sonia, could you survive on the minimum wage? You know, I did have minimum wage jobs when I was younger. Um, Let's talk about the minimum wage worker. Yeah, how would that be today? Right. Well, you know, two-thirds of of minimum wage workers are under the age of 30, and two-thirds of them are also part-time by choice. So I I think the the point is um, minimum wage is not meant to to be for uh, supporting a family of four. It's an entry-level job for people that don't have skills. You, You get your foot in the door, you learn those skills, and you work your way up. And and those types of jobs will be going away, as we have already seen. And that's a real big concern. And so those folks uh, should just scrape by, you're saying? Well, we're saying that there may be better solutions rather than putting small businesses out of business, um, like the earned income tax credit, like workforce development. We're Right now we have a program that's in more than 30 high schools around Colorado, and we're teaching those skills to, to people to give them that opportunity to get their foot in their door and work their way up. So that's an interesting um, argument. And I think at the end of the day, there are always going to be low wage jobs and there will always need to be people working those low wages jobs and that those people working those low wage jobs should be able to clothe themselves and feed themselves. Uh, It doesn't. I mean, you can give people job improvements um, and whatnot, but there will still be people working those minimum wage jobs. And if they can't take care of themselves, then again, that cost gets offset to the business owners that are already operating at the margins and to taxpayers. I mentioned earlier that in our conversation with Governor John Hickenlooper recently, he was leaning towards supporting this. But one reservation he had uh, dealt with the tipped wage and I'm, I'm just wondering if we might explore that for a bit here, Sonia. This is something that restaurants in particular, I think, are concerned about. They are, because under this measure, the tipped wage increases 70 percent um, over the next three years and two months. And, and what's already difficult for restaurants is they have a hard time because oftentimes their servers make more than managers. And now those people getting a 70 percent increase, it makes it more difficult to pay higher wages to the folks that they call in the back of the house, which are like the cooks um, and the dishwashers. And um, let me just give you an example of how the math works here. For, yeah, and let me, let me just yeah. um, uh, be clear about what the tipped wage is. Sure. So obviously employees who earn tips make a different minimum wage. They make $3.02 an hour less than the regular minimum wage. And if they don't make up that money in tips, the employer has to pay them that money themselves. Oh, right. And under Amendment 70, uh, there is not a change to the tipped wage, correct? So you're saying that for those workers – this is uh, an even larger increase. So there's not a change to the tip credit, which means the tipped wage itself is increasing. Um, it'll go up to eight ninety eight an hour. Right now it's five twenty nine. It'll go up to eight ninety eight an hour in, right, in just over that. three years. Um, and and 
the the reason that is a huge impact on restaurants are specifically on restaurants um, is because that seventy percent is really difficult on an average fifteen dollar meal. Um, about $5 and, and then oftentimes um, more than that goes to um, salaries and wages. And only $0.60 cents goes uh, comes into the owner as profit before taxes. Now take that $5 portion of that $15 meal and increase it anywhere between 44%, which is what the ma- regular minimum wage is, okay. and 70%. They don't have that money. That that they don't have the money. If they already did, if they if they knew how to do that, they would already be increasing prices. But law of supply and demand: as prices increase, demand goes down. Do you think that if there had been some consideration of the tip credits, that the restaurant association might have gotten behind this? I don't know that we would have gotten behind it as a supporter, but we probably would have been neutral. Deborah, how how, how do you respond to this notion that the credit for tipped employees is not changing here? So I want to, again, put it in perspective. There are over 50,000 Coloradoans who are working as waiters and waitresses. They make a w- median wage, including tips, of $9.02 an hour. So I think we have this conception of uh, wait staff that they're uh, making bank, making more than managers. But in You might terms... picture the fanciest restaurant. You right, right. And so the, the median wage, again, is $9.02 an hour. Um, and so it's really important that we are lifting all boats together, um, including the workers. That's why we have broad support from restaurants across the state, um, from counter service like Illegal Pete's to uh, sit-down dining, um, or a house um, in Durango. We have a wide contingency of support. And the thing that um, some of our business owners um, like to say, like uh, Edwin from Zomama, he says, we are smart creative and resourceful. When our electricity bills go up, we figure out a way to deal with it. The cost, especially in restaurant industry, is variable. There's a lot of things that impact um, their costs. And good, smart business owners adjust. And they they will stay in business and thrive. Um, and we can get into the research in terms of the overwhelming body of research that shows the impact of actual gro- job um, loss versus growth um, in states where they raise the minimum wage. Yeah, let's. Why don't we look at that after a break? So we are talking on the show today about Amendment Seventy, which will be on your ballot. This is a statewide amendment, and it uh, would raise the minimum wage eventually to twelve dollars an hour. So back in just a moment, it's Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Today we're debating Amendment Seventy to raise the minimum wage in Colorado. Joining us, Deborah Brown. She's business manager for Colorado Business for a Fair Minimum Wage, which is in favor of Amendment 70. And Sonia Riggs joins us as well, president of the Colorado Restaurant Association. So, Deborah, Americans for Prosperity says that if this amendment passes, 90,000 jobs will be lost in the ensuing six years. I will say that the Bell Policy Center and the Colorado Fiscal Institute have pushed back against that number. I think a really critical question here is what will happen to employment? Uh, Weigh in on that from your perspective, Deborah. So if you actually look at the wide body of research on raising the minimum wage, um, the studies indicate little to no job loss um, and even job increase, especially looking at studies where you take a municipality that has raised the minimum wage and compare it to the economic growth in neighboring municipalities. Uh, and there's a wide body of research that supports that. The specific study that you um, cited, there's several problems with it. It does not uh, use the biggest, the best um, 
and most respected methodology. Um, and we also think it's questionable that the um, think tank that funded the study the um, that is married to the lead consultant of the opposition campaign. Um, it also is in conflict with the um, data put out by the Congressional Budget Office um, that predicts a minimum amount of job loss nationally and the portion of job loss that that 90 when they, when they looked at raising the minimum wage nationally you're saying right yeah okay. so they basically studied over decades of research of what's happened when the minimum wage has been raised in different places different states different municipalities and what the impact on that has been um, on the economy so for example um, there was a study done called minimum wage effects across state borders and it compared all neighboring counties in the U.S. located on different sides of a state border with different minimum wage levels between 1990 and 2006. That's a long range. And they found no adverse employment effects from higher minimum wages. Uh, the Institute for Research on Labor and Employment's um, spatial uh, uh, another study also found that um, it, it doesn't even impact teen employment analyzed in 1990 to 2009 right. period. Sonia, what would you say about employment? What are you hearing from restaurant members? Well, first of all, I would say to say that the Congressional Budget Office said there was going to be little impact is just not true. There, it said They said 500,000 jobs would be lost around the country. Um, we know when we surveyed our members that 72% of them said that they would either uh, you have to cut staff hours or cut um, actual staff jobs. And in fact, one one member I talked to who's a woman restaurant owner in South Denver, um, she has 85 employees and her, her busters make an average of $18 to $22 an hour. Her servers make $30 to $35 an hour. She's done the math for her restaurant, said she's going to have to lay off 15 employees. There's a reason that the Restaurant Association is very concerned about this. They they want to keep people employed and they want to give people a great customer experience. And, but wait, and it they sounds don't like she's not paying prices. minimum wage. She well, servers t- typically make five twenty nine an hour. Yeah. So this would be a seventy percent increase on in, that. In part because of the lack of that tip credit. Right. Exactly. So that. those people, she's paying them five twenty nine an hour, but yeah. they're actually making a much higher wage. Can I? Uh, so you mentioned the five hundred thousand um, dollars, and that's across five hundred thousand jobs. Oh, sorry, thank you. Across the entire U.S., but let's just remember this is an economy that's comprised of one hundred and forty five million jobs. So that's a job loss of point three percent nationally. So again, how does that not translate to ninety thousand jobs here in Colorado alone? So I, I want to go to Paul Seaborn. He's a professor at DU's Daniels College of Business. He teaches the minimum wage. And he says raising it might hurt employers to some degree and might lead to fewer low-wage jobs. But conversely, keeping the minimum wage too low hurts workers. Nobody, literally, you know, no one knows the perfect number for Colorado's minimum wage. And that, that's unfortunate, but it, it's a reality. So I think I would urge the voters to get beyond that general uncertainty to think about whether this particular proposal seems to them like a balanced and, and a fair proposal. And so what he's saying there is this is really a question for each voter about whether Amendment 70 strikes the right balance. How did you decide on eventually $12 an hour? Why is that the figure uh, that, that this arrives at, Deborah? So, again, we wanted to come up with something that was gradual that would give businesses time to adjust. Right. It's gradual. Why $12? $12 um, is, is an amount that 
uh, voters were in favor of. We did wide polling and there was um, large support for $12. Um, it also has to do with the cliff effect. When you um, raise above that to 15, um, people would lose access to certain benefits like their child care credits and such. So 12 was really kind of the magical number that felt right for Colorado and also made sure that we were um, protecting workers from um, – from the those, cliff those kinds of losses. I want to to follow the money here a little bit. Uh, Deborah, through August, almost two million dollars was contributed to your campaign. But despite the name, Colorado Families for a Fair Wage, eighty eight percent of that money has come from outside of the state. How do you account for that discrepancy? So Amendment 70 is a Colorado-grown effort. There's no question about it. Our leaders have been working for more than two years on the infrastructure. And um, some of our backers are national organizations. So that money Looks is like a lot of them are. coming in from out of state, but they have not uh, local affiliations. Um, for example, our um, NEA, our National Education Association, these educators are the ones who are in the classrooms who see what happens when kids come to school hungry. They're fighting for this because it impacts their ability to be good teachers when their kids come to school hungry. So it's it's a Colorado-grown effort. Um, there are lots of local organizations that have national alliances that are contributing because it's that important of an issue. Sonia, while Elway's Restaurant and Hacienda Colorado have donated to a political action committee opposed to Amendment 70. Your biggest donor, according to our reporting, is Virginia-based Workforce Fairness Institute. Who else is supporting your side? Well, the, actually, the, the largest donor is the um, Hospitality Issues Political Committee, which is made up of a lot of restaurants um, that have given contributed to, to our organization. Um, so it's primarily... If you look at the the dollar amounts from small businesses, people are giving five hundred, a thousand, whatever they can give. All right, uh, but you do have some big donors, correct? We have one, one just big donor, the one. And and tell me who they are. Just say a little bit more about them. They're actually a group that's trying to protect um, work. They're trying to project jobs from big labor unions, and and that's exactly where the proponents' funding is coming from: out of state large labor unions. Do you both agree on who minimum wage earners are? Because at the beginning of the conversation, when Deborah was explaining who they were, you were nodding uh, in what appeared to be disagreement, Sonia. Well, that's correct. I, I honestly don't know how they can get their numbers because according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, half of minimum wage workers are under the age of 25 and nearly two thirds are under the age of 30. And two-thirds of minimum wage workers are part-time. And I understand there are exceptions. There are always exceptions to rule. There may be um, some people out there that, that are, are older that don't fall into that category. But minimum wage is just that. It's the, it's the starting wage is another way of looking at it. It's for jobs where you do not require any skills. You get your foot in the door. You learn those kinds of sk- those skills on the job, and then you work your way up. Can, uh, first of all, I think it's offensive to say that they're non-skilled jobs. We have minimum and low-wage workers who are working jobs like nursing assistants, preschool teachers, EMTs, and caregivers for the elderly and disabled. These require a high level of skill, as do working in restaurants. You of all people should know that. Um, and we are looking at the amount of people who will be impacted by this legislation, I'm sorry, by this ballot initiative. So we're looking at not just the people making the minimum wage right now, but the people will be lifted up entirely by this ballot 
initiative. At the end of the day, $300 a week is the minimum wage, and nobody can live off of that. And the amount of people who will be helped and who are impacted by that, 86% are over the age of 20. That's nearly 9 out of 10. And again, it's not low-skilled workers. These are people who are providing valuable jobs to our community. Deborah, won't the market take care of this to some extent? That is to say, if there's a lot of competition for workers in a given field, then employers are forced with, uh, to, to deal with the reality of that and increase their wages. Why not trust the market in this regard and the all already in place minimum wage that's tied to the cost of living? That's a great question. So if you look at it, over the past decade, the actual income of workers has only gone up by 21 percent, but the cost of housing alone has more than doubled. So it's really the minimum wage as it is, is just not keeping up with the cost of living here in Colorado. But if uh, the market dictates a higher wage than the minimum wage, I'm saying. Unfortunately, what's happening right now with the free market is employers that aren't paying their employees enough to get by are forcing us taxpayers and business owners that are paying a livable wage to compensate that. That's not free market. That's corporate welfare. There is no – if the free market were working properly, then employers would be required to make their – pay their employees so they could take care of their basic needs. All right, Deborah, we gave you the first word. Sonia, we'll give you the last. And and perhaps if you'd like, address that market question for me. Well – I believe that the market absolutely should have a bearing on what the minimum wage is. Like I said, you're seeing people um, hire dishwashers for $15 an hour in Aurora. Um, but but Lyman, the same is not true for Lyman and Pueblo and and Brighton even. Um, and 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 yet, it, there's never been a minimum wage in Colorado that's geographically specific, has there? There has not. But what you're seeing in some of these other states um, is that there are there are other alternatives, like larger businesses who who have to pay a higher wage than say a small business of a, of relatively few employees. And we're not seeing that here. Um, or in some cases, you're seeing that rural. Uh, a rural wage different than an urban wage. And, and it's just not the case here. So I think it's unfortunate that this one-size-fits-all approach is just not the way to help these people. You heard there Sonia Riggs, president of the Colorado Restaurant Association, which opposes Amendment 70 to raise the minimum wage to $12 an hour by 2020. Deborah Brown is business manager for Colorado Business for a Fair Minimum Wage, which is in favor of the measure. And this is part of a national week of conversation at NPR and member stations called A Nation Engaged. We're asking this week what can be done to create economic opportunity for more Americans. Our coverage of the minimum wage doesn't stop here. Coming up uh, in just a few days, CPR's Megan Verlee will catch up with some employers. And if you are a low-wage worker, we'd like to hear from you. You can share your experience through our public insight network at cprnews.org. And we'll be right back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. In the 1970s, the world's giant panda population hit a low of about 1,000. There are fewer than 2,500 alive today. Yet they were recently taken off the endangered species list and are now considered vulnerable. The director of Pandas International, Suzanne Braden, says that's both good and bad. Braden has fought for pandas from a place that doesn't really have them. That's Littleton, Colorado. She was recently recognized by the Chinese government for her work with pandas. And uh, Susan, nice to Suzanne, pardon me. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. We're going to get to the recent change in giant pandas endangered status. But 
I understand you were in China in 1999 on some business, and it was a visit to a panda reserve that really changed your the direction of your life, I it guess. Did. Yeah. It did. Yes, I visited the panda reserve in 1999. Um, it was truly a magical moment when when you see them just sitting there at twilight, munching on their bamboo. It it was truly a magical moment. And this is how Pandas International got started. It is. In it Littleton, is. Colorado. In Littleton, Colorado. That's the number one question we get asked. Why is Pandas International International in Littleton? Because that's where I live. But the, the trip and subsequent questioning of some of the vets there at the center, I recognized a strong need for some additional help for their efforts. And what, what does that help look like then? Uh, well, when I started in 2000, they had to draw blood from a sick panda, send it down the mountain to a human lab, wait for the results to be done, not knowing if the temperature of the blood had been kept at a proper temperature, get the results to come back up the mountain, and then the vets would treat the problem. So one of the first things that we tried to do was get what's called a vet scan, which any vet in the United States would have in their lab, so the vets themselves could test the blood sample immediately and get immediate results. And that's a thing now. That happens now. It's a big thing now. Okay. Give me a picture of your work today. Uh, Well, one of the biggest things we do today is more medical equipment, vaccines, uh, we help with the reintroduction program, which I think you're going to get to in a minute. Yeah. Uh, collars and other supplies for that. A lot of medicines um, that we take and more medical equipment. Uh, we're working on a new ultrasound right now. Oh, a good number of pandas are raised in captivity, and the hope is to release them into the wild, which has had mixed results. That's what you're. That's what you're alluding to. <laughs> it has had mixed results. Um, it, it's been a long learning curve. People in Colorado are familiar with the reintroduction of the lynx, which has been a difficult task for us. With pandas, it's the same thing. There is no textbook on how to reintroduce a panda. It's trial and error, unfortunately. Um, and the first panda that my assistant director worked for <coughs> with for three months did die um, through a fight with other male pandas. So, After that panda was at, released. Yes. How how did pandas become endangered? Will you remind us? <laughs> um, I was just asked that in the green room, and my simple answer is humans. Okay. Um, <laughs> What's a more nuanced version <laughs> more of that? More nuanced would be habitat destruction. In the As you mentioned, in the 70s, in some in the 80s, there was poaching, and poaching was a big problem. The government really cracked down on that, and that has virtually been eliminated. Okay. But habitat destruction is still the number one problem for wild pandas. And is that a function of bamboo, then? It is a function of growth. It's a function of roads, villages, industrial, um, logging, anything that destroys the natural environment. And their food source. And their food source. Mm -hmm. So poaching, less of a problem today. Uh, Paint a picture of these panda reserves where they are bred in captivity. The panda reserves that we support are dedicated to research and scientific knowledge. They focus on saving the species. So it's definitely a big picture uh, approach to it. Our reserves are a more natural environment where the panda is, yes, kept in captivity, but their health, their social behavior, 
um, their learning is all monitored. They do a lot of behavioral research. Is it difficult to get pandas to mate in captivity? It is difficult. It has been very difficult in the past, and they have resorted to a lot of artificial insemination. The center that we work with has made great strides in this area. One of the things that they started doing was introducing male pandas into the breeding center. It used to be all females, so you huh. only smelled females. Changing the environments changed uh, their, their, their mood, Pandas I guess. are hugely scent-oriented. So if they don't have those scents, they don't quite know what to do. So if the male panda is introduced to a female panda when she goes into estrus, he's a lot more likely to show interest. Is it easy to tell when a panda is pregnant? It is almost impossible to tell when a panda is pregnant. Oh, really? The only way you can tell if a panda is pregnant is through an ultrasound. And even then, the fetus is so tiny and it does float that you have to be a very good technician to be able to spot the the, uh, fetus. And I imagine this speaks to some of the technology that is necessary to detect that. Exactly. All right. And if... A baby panda is born. How difficult is it to raise a panda in captivity? When I first started, it was difficult. Now they have the success rate up around 90%. So they have made great strides here. One of the things that my dear friend, Dr. Lee, instigated, pandas have twins about 50% of the time. And in the wild, the mother will select the stronger of the two and unfortunately allow the other one to die. Dr. Lee, in captivity, started a swapping program. And and who is Dr. Lee? He is the deputy director and head veterinarian of the China Conservation and Research Center. All right. And he came up with the idea that we should swap the twins. One would be raised in the nursery and one would be left with the mother. Most mothers will allow this back and forth. That way, both pandas, both cubs, both twins get the mother's attention, nourishment, Um, antibiotics Hmm. that they receive from her. So it's just a much better, healthier way to keep both pandas alive in captivity. Tell me about panda suits. Panda suits. Well, panda suits, and thanks for asking this, they are used only with the pandas that are going in the reintroduction program. Okay. And are these people dressed as pandas? These are people dressed as pandas. Um, It is not to convince the pandas that they are pandas. It is to disguise the humans. They don't want these pandas that are going to be released to acclimate to humans. To be at all comfortable with to humans. Be at all, you want pandas in the wild to fear humans. And so around the ones that will be released, you dress up as a panda. I have dressed up in a panda suit. Oh, you have? I have. I understand we have video of this at cprnews.org. Let's take a quick break and then return to this conversation with Suzanne Braden. She's director of Pandas International, which you may not guess is in Littleton, Colorado. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are speaking with the director of Pandas International that's based in Littleton, Colorado, Suzanne Braden. She was recently recognized by the Chinese government for her work. And Suzanne, I want to ask about this uh, idea that giant pandas have been taken off an endangered species list and are now considered vulnerable. Again, there are just under 2,500 of them alive today. Is this a sign of progress? Is this misguided in your uh, estimation? 
I think it's mixed. I think it's a double-edged sword. Like most things in our society, it is good. Um, I just read this morning that one of the researchers in China said, well, it's like when grandmother gets out of ICU. You're really, really happy she's out of ICU, but she's not out of the hospital yet. Mm -hmm. So you know there's still a long way to go. Um, I defer to the director of the Panda Center's and he's called Papa Panda because he has the most experience of anyone in the world with pandas. And he thinks it's premature. 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 To what extent does climate change threaten pandas? Well, I think that's the biggest thing that even the reports stated, that pandas are vulnerable because of climate change. Their own estimate is that 35% of the bamboo that pandas need to survive will be be lost in the next 80 years. If that happens, um, pandas will have to be reclassified as endangered. That's another reason I think it was premature. I think we should have waited a little bit to see how the reintroduction impacts the wild and how climate change impacts their food source. Pandas are obviously very cute. Very cute. Um, Why do you think they are worth saving? What is it about this animal in particular? Well, most people would say because they are so cute. I say because if humans have caused them to be endangered or vulnerable, then I think we have an obligation to help bring them back from that edge. I understand there's a panda named after you. There is a panda named after me. That was the biggest honor I have ever received in my life. In 2011, the uh, one of the vets asked me if I would like to have a panda named after me. And I said, it would be a great honor. He asked me to pick out which one I wanted. And since I'm the younger of two sisters, I picked the younger of two twin pandas that were both females. And how is that panda today? She just had her first baby on my husband's birthday. So it is a little boy. So we're going to adopt him and name him after my husband. I see. I take it that uh, pandas are quite small when they're born. Is that right? Well, I used to say they're the size of a Twinkie until someone from the U.K. asked me what a Twinkie was. So I went to a stick of butter. But, yes, they're they're about the size of our sticks of butter. They are very small, very tiny, and very frail. Uh, back in 1936, the arrival of the first panda in the United States sparked something that has often been called pandamania or pandemonium. <laughs> well, what is pandamania? I think it's just... The love of something that is exotic and different and honestly not found in the United States. Now I think it's spread worldwide. I think it the panda has become the symbol of conservation. And I like to say if we can't save something this cute and this cuddly, we're not going to save any endangered species. And so does the panda's plight give you hope? <laughs> or or, or are, are you sort of more pessimistic? No, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. The The progress has been terrific. I think the Chinese are really working very hard at it. I know a lot of Chinese personally that dedicate their lives to these animals. Um, after the big earthquake in 2008, a lot of the staff members stayed with their pandas when they didn't even know where their own family and their own children were. Hmm. And you can be a panda nanny. It's hard to be a panda nanny. It's a a very restricted position, but they do have one of the best jobs in the world, and they'll tell you that. I mean, they are just these cute, cuddly little balls of, of fun and affection. 
And how how much improvement do you see in the ability to breed pandas in captivity and release them? I mean, is it two steps forward, one step back, or what? It, in the releases, yes, it has been two steps forward and one step back. We have learned, or the Chinese have learned, a great deal about how to do reintroduction. And on our website, we outline the reintroduction process in place now. But the cubs that will be released never are supposed to come in contact with human. The mother does all the training. They have to be able to find their own food in the wild um, and survive in the wild finding their own food and water before they are released. I see. And when is the next release? Uh, it's scheduled for sometime this fall, depending on the, how the, pan- the cub's doing. Uh, to wrap up, what would you say is, is the, the one thing, the biggest thing that could be done that would improve the plight of pandas? Continual efforts to breed captive pandas, but probably more importantly is to help their habitat. And that's another reason I'm very concerned about the downgrading to vulnerable. I think it will give people a license to go into the habitat more, perhaps make you know conservation less of a priority, and people do tend to, you know, slide off. If they don't see it as a critical problem, efforts do slacken off. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Suzanne Braden directs Pandas International in Littleton, Colorado. And she was recently recognized by the Chinese government for her conservation work. And to shamelessly drive up our web traffic, we've posted photos and videos of pandas at CPRnews.org. The National Museum of African American History and Culture opens in Washington later this week. It is the 19th and the newest Smithsonian Museum. And inside, visitors will see a statue of Clara Brown. Who is she? Let's hear from author Julie Danneberg, author of Women Icons of the West. She was an African American woman uh, born in 1800 and had been a slave in the South. She lost her family through being sold, um, which is a key part of her life. But she ultimately was freed. Her last owner and his will left her money. He left her $300, and she bought her own freedom from the family. So she got a job as a housekeeper. This is before the Civil War. She had to get out of Kentucky, which is where she was a slave, because They had a year to get out of the state or they would become a slave again. She ended up in um, Kansas, and two things were going on. It was dangerous to be a slave, uh, a freed slave. She had to carry her papers with her at all times. To prove that she was free. And there was a big business in stealing papers and um, stealing freed slaves and sending them back. So there was that part of it, and... She had three children that were sold into slavery. She had kept in touch with her two daughters. Her son was sold to the Deep South, and she knew that that was pretty much a death sentence. But her two daughters, she was able to keep in touch with. Ultimately, she knew that one died, and one, Eliza Jane, just disappeared. And she thought there were so many people going west, maybe she might find her daughter in the West. So she comes to Denver. She arrives in Denver. She didn't know a single person. 
She did not know if anybody would allow her to live there because she was black. She didn't have a way to support herself. And yet she just came one day and um, was able to find a place to live in pretty short order. She got a job as a cook in a restaurant here. Denver was very raw. I mean, 1859 is when she arrived here. It was just the very beginnings of Denver. And she created a, a life for herself. Would there have been many black people in Denver at that point? She found out there were not. In fact, the 1860 census, which is a year after she came, there were 15 black men and eight black women. So she was one of the first to arrive in Denver. She eventually moves to Central City. Right. And her her search for her long-lost daughter continues. Yes. She had been looking for Eliza Jane, asking people that she met if they knew where she was, had never gotten any leads. So after the Civil War was over, she decided this would be a good time to go back to Kentucky and um, continue the search firsthand. And by that time, she had actually made a lot of money. There were lots for sale up in these mining towns. She bought a lot for sale for $50 right when she got up there. And, of course, she couldn't buy it. She had to do it through a white uh, lawyer or somebody that would do it for her. But she built a house on it. She charged rent. And then in 1868, she sold that one property for $500. So she was a very good businesswoman. And she made quite a bit of money through rent and through grub staking new miners and through her business of washing clothes. Grub staking. Grub staking is when miners come up to the mountains, they try to buy like 30 days worth of food and they buy their supplies and it costs a lot of money and they don't have it. So somebody invests in them and buys the things they need in return for part of the money that they might make. It's a very risky investment. But she apparently played it well. She was a very smart woman. Not educated, but incredibly smart and a very good business sense. Did she ever find Eliza Jane? Yes. 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 She eventually found her. It was like 1880, so it was many years later. She had continuously written letters, and somebody wrote her a letter back and said, I think she lives in Council Bluffs, Iowa. So she contacted the woman, took a train, and met her in Council Bluffs. They had a long-lost reunion, and ultimately Clara returned to Denver, and Eliza Jane came with her and cared for her the last few years of her life. Thanks so much. It's nice to meet you. Thank you. It was nice to meet you, too. Julie Dannyberg, author of Women Icons of the West, talking about Clara Brown, who's featured in the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture, That museum opens in Washington, D.C. on Saturday. Oh, freedom. Oh, freedom. Oh, freedom over me and before I'll be a slave. my grave and go home to my 
And that's Colorado Matters for today. Our managing producer is Rachel Esterbrook, and our producers include Anthony Cotton, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle P. Fulcher, Nathan Heffel, and Stephanie Wolf. You can follow us on Twitter at Colorado Matters and connect with us on Facebook, CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Public Radio. No more, no more we no. No.